The world is like a ride at an amusement park, and when you choose to go on it, you think it's real, because that's how powerful our minds are. I can tell you from experience, the effect you have on others is the most valuable currency there is. Don't think, feel. It is like a finger pointing away to the moon. Don't concentrate on the finger or you will miss all that heavenly glory. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Hey, brothers, welcome back to the Liberation Mental Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Rogratti, speaking to you from my home studio in Tucson, Arizona. As always, I hope this message finds you guys happy and healthy. Before we get into the guest for today's show, I just want to share something that's been on my mind for a while, which is I've been thinking of how to phrase this, and I don't really have the perfect way, but I'll, I'll just give it my best shot. You know, with COVID-19 and the coronavirus, one thing I've realized from watching the situation intently over the past four or five months and having had what I suspect to be COVID-19 in, I think it was February or March, my wife and I both got really ill and I'm guessing it was that because I just come back from Asia. But there's a tendency for the mind to want to ascribe meaning to things and for us to want to know that we know what's going on or to be able to make sense of the world, right? To be able to plant our flag and say, I, this is my position. This is what I believe and I'm going to defend it. And speaking to many, many, many intelligent people over the, the last four or five months and watching a lot of videos and reading a lot of opinions, one of the things I've realized is that's just it. Everyone has an opinion, but the truth is nobody knows. Right? No one knows. Not the conspiracy dude who's saying that it's all a lie and it's all a hoax and that nothing's going on. Not Dr. Fauci or the health officials. No one knows what's going on with this thing. And you know what? It's okay to say you don't know sometimes. Often that's the beginning of knowledge. And I don't speak much about coronavirus because I, I just... <sighs> That's the honest truth. I just don't know. I don't know what's going on. I don't know where it came from. I don't know how long it's going to be here. I don't know if social distancing is effective. I don't know if the figures that we're hearing are true. I don't know. I just don't know. And that's okay. And I just want to offer that up to you guys, that it's okay to not know sometimes. Anyway, I don't know where that came from. It's just been on my mind for a while and I, I wanted to share it with you all. So uh, let's dive into today's guest. A very very cool dude. There's just no other way to put it. He's one of those people who succeeded in making a business out of something he loved and he never sold out. You know, he created cool products and had fun doing so. And also most importantly, he found the courage to step out and leave a secure job and, uh, and go for it. And you guys know how close that is to to my heart when I hear someone doing that, like having the balls to step up, you know, and, and do what they believe in. That's, I, I just have so much respect for that. And uh, let's just dive in and hear what he has to say. Enjoy. Hey brothers, welcome back to the Liberation Mental Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Gregorides, and I'm with my friend, Matt Benyon today. Matt is someone I haven't seen for almost five years, but we've kept in touch on social media. He's an extraordinarily creative human being, and he's built uh, an amazing business for himself and a, a fantastic brand 
in uh, the martial arts niche. And he's just an all-around interesting guy. So that's why I wanted to have him on the show. Thanks for coming on, Matt. Thanks, Nick. That was a very nice intro. Thanks a lot. Yeah, it's just the truth, Matt. <laughs> Matt, let's start with, I think, something that I, I didn't know about you. And that is that your your father grew up in, so your father lived in the South Pacific. And so you spent mm. a lot of your youth growing up on the South Pacific Islands, which I had absolutely no idea. I'd love to hear more <laughs> about that because, I mean, it's such an iconic place, right? Like, I mean, so many movies yeah. have been set there and it's it's literally supposed to be paradise. And I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, and uh, my wife's Japanese, right? And in, in Japan, they, they uh, this the sort of marketing tagline for New Caledonia, where he lives, is the island closest to heaven. My dad took a job, um, a translation job, because he studied uh, French at university. And it was a posting in the South Pacific in a country called Vanuatu. And, you know, for whatever reason, he was like, yeah, I'll do that. (laughs) He moved. (laughs) I mean, that must have been late 70s or something. So I guess there wasn't many people, you know, wasn't a huge amount of people making that trip at the time. Mm-hmm. And he went. I can't quite remember the story. I think him and my mum went there together. And then my mum was pregnant, and she, uh, I guess, she didn't want to have the baby in, you know, whatever kind of low grade hospital they had in Vanuatu in the 70s. So I, I was born in England and then quickly went back to Vanuatu. I actually spent the first year of my life there. Um, and then my parents split up I guess and then I grew up in England but my dad stayed in the, in the South Pacific and then soon after that he moved to New Caledonia and then when I, I guess when I was about 10 or 11 I started uh, yearly trips over there and mm. on my own and that was a huge kind of formative experience for me I suppose. I'm sure but do they even let kids do that anymore like I remember when I was younger sometimes my family and I would be on a trip and there'd be like a a lone kid that was kind of you know accompanied yeah. sometimes by an air dude or so. oh yeah I mean yeah. is that even a thing anymore like I can't imagine that taking place in today's world I, I I think they still do it but it's very different it used to go as an unaccompanied minor you'd have her yeah. arm stuck, stuck on you and uh I even mate I used to get into first class I used to go into the cockpit this is everything that's yeah, great. It was brilliant. It was brilliant. It was a real adventure. So funny enough, uh, one of my previous guests called Yigo um, Maki Baroda, he he was he went to the Peace Corps uh, right after college and they stationed him in Vanuatu. And he's <laughs> got some yeah, it's wild. It's just blew my I've never actually heard that name until mm. he mentioned it, and then you're the second person to speak about it. Sounds like I'm gonna have to go visit one day. Yeah, yeah. but I mean my my I've never been to that part of the world and my only real understanding of it or impression of it is from the the book and movie um Papillon about the uh, the French penal uh, colony. The prison. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the prison where, where the guy escapes from. And so I, I actually I mean that in that movie it's it's pretty horrific. These guys are all relegated to this island prison and mm. It, it's horrible, right? So um, yeah. I'm pretty sure it wasn't like that for you. Can you tell me a little bit more? Like, I mean, that that part of the world, it just, it, it fascinates me. What was it like? So you, you'd arrive there and, you know, no one speaks English or? Yeah, it was, it was really different. It was, uh, I remember like coming off the plane and there was like the wind was really warm, which was unusual for me growing up in England. <laughs> and then like the grass has got a certain kind of smell and 
consistency that I've it always stuck in my head like it's really spongy and kind of thick grass it's not like you know the weedy kind of English grass and then uh, the smell of it yeah it was just a big adventure for me I used to hang around with my dad you know the whole time he was working for the government there's like a South Pacific Commission it's called and they organize like uh, intergovernmental meetings and he's what he's like the head interpreter and uh I think that the main thing that stuck out for me was they in the evenings there's a massive culture of drinking cava, uh, which is not, nothing to do with the Spanish wine. Mm-hmm. It's like a uh, it's a it's a leaf or it's a relative of the pepper plant, but it's a narcotic. Um, and then, like in the old days or traditionally, they somebody chews it and basically spits it out, and then they strain it, and then you drink it. Uh, nowadays, like. I don't think they do that so much. They, they just mash it up by hand and strain it. Mm-hmm. But um, it's like a social tradition and like everybody does it every night. Like you finish work and you go, it's called a nakamal and it's like uh, there's a fire. Oh, they don't do fires anymore. They did when I was a huge fire, loads of benches around it and just all the local people just like drinking carver and talking like late into the night. I used to just go off on my own and like, you know, poke the fire with sticks or walk on the beach and stuff. I loved it. That sounds incredible. I mean, the couple of things that jump out at me is that that kind of community experience uh, in that format sounds so much healthier than just going to a pub or a bar and drinking a beer. I tried cover no, once. Really different. Yeah, very different, right? I tried cover once in last year, actually, in Hawaii. And uh, right. to be honest, it just made me, it just gave me a headache. Um, and, uh, I wasn't a huge fan, but... No, you've got to be careful with it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, and I'm now looking back, I'm kind of hoping that the the old lady who served it to us didn't strain it or, or chew it up <laughs> and spit it and then strain it through a, a thing. But, uh, That's the yeah, because <laughs> that would explain the taste, to be fair. Um, <laughs> I think all the Pacific Islanders like argue who has the best carver. But I think uh, <laughs> I think Vanuatu is the home of carver, as I understand okay. it. And then okay. I think New Caledonia gets the good stuff from Vanuatu. So yeah, don't give up on it just yet. I won't, I won't. So, so Matt... Your story, I think, is inextricably linked with the Far East. And I'm starting to understand a little bit more also that I'm sure this played a role in the way you see the world because, as I said in your intro, you're a very creative human being. But specifically, I want to talk about your experience with Japan because I know you've spent quite a lot of time there and your, your wife is Japanese as well. Like, how did you... And, and Japan is something that's really close to my heart. It's, I try to go there once every year or once every two years. And yeah. I'm, I'm learning Japanese at the moment and uh, it's oh, just, nice. yeah, that culture just fascinates me. And I'd, I'd just love to hear about your first time there and, and, and your experience with the with the country and anything you can share with with the listeners yeah. about your experience with Japan. Okay. It, it started in a different, like, I was initially kind of fascinated by China because uh, I had a roommate at university who was really into Kung Fu and uh, I was you know, I really uh, respected the guy, so I kind of took everything that he said as gospel. You know, and he uh-huh. he got he got me really into kung fu. He was kind of like a father figure for me at university, and I ended up in the gap between year two and three. I went to Sydney because there was a uh, a gym there, run, uh, like a dojo. Uh, what do you call it? I don't. Know, I can't remember the word. A kun run by a Chinese guy, and uh, that was my dream to go there and train with him. 
And then when I was there, I met uh, a Japanese girl and uh, we got together. Uh, I basically got booted out of university because I wasn't doing any work. I was like a ghost. Uh, I just didn't know. I was way too young. And the beer, the beer was way too cheap for me to do any work. Sounds like my experience of university, to be fair. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, you were set up to fail, you know, in my uh-huh. opinion anyway. Yeah. So I went back. I briefly came back to the UK, didn't enjoy myself. And my wife, my girlfriend at the time said, let's just move to Japan. So we did. And that was it. Absolutely loved the place. It was incredible. I'm sure. Yeah. I'm So... I mean, the thing I always try to explain to people about Japan, a friend of mine, before I'd, before I'd taken my first visit, he, he, he said something that just really intrigued me. I'd, I'd always wanted to visit, but after he told me this, it, it cemented it in my mind forever that I had to go. And he said, he had just come back from this trip. And I was like, tell me everything. Tell me what was it, what was it like? And he just looked at me and he said, Nick, it felt like I had landed on another planet in a spaceship. And I got out the spaceship and I was just walking around an alien civilization. And, and when he said that, I was just like, I, I don't care what it takes. I'm going to go visit yeah. that place. Yeah, there, there's, a tra- there's a travel writer. Um, I can't remember who it was, but he wrote, every country is different, but Japan is differently different. <laughs> I love it. That's so true. And yeah, I think about that a lot because, you know, a lot of Americans don't travel and I interact with them. And because I've traveled a fair bit, they ask me a lot about about recommendations and where to go and, and most of them want to go to Europe right um, on their first big trip and I just say to them like you know Europe is cool you'll see some amazing things and it's an interesting culture but ultimately it's not too dissimilar from America right like you know you can no exactly yeah. you, you know what I mean like there's so much overlap but when you go to the far east in particular a place like Japan it's it's just it'll give you that real understanding of the differences uh, that mm. exist in the world and the differences that exist between cultures. What, what's your favorite thing about Japan? I guess is my next question, Matt. Mm, that's a tough one. I like a lot of things about it. There's a lot of things I don't like about it as well, which is probably a thing that you you pick up if you live there for a while, same as any other country. Well, let's start, let's start there because I think I probably romanticize it and look at it through rose-colored uh, mm. spectacles for sure. Yeah, that which is which is understandable. Um, oh yeah, I don't want to get too cynical too quickly, but that like <laughs> is your wife in the room? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I don't want to start ragging on it just yet, but I will. It's okay. No, um, the amazing thing about Japan is how Japanese it is, right? Mm-hmm. So that's amazing if you're visiting or if you're, you know, that that's what you that's what you want to experience. But if you want to make a home there suddenly you realize that you are different and you'll always be different no matter how long you live there or how you you could be fluent Japanese because you're not part of the homogenous Japanese race. My son was born there. So for all intents and purposes, he was Japanese before he was ever English, you know, because he didn't get his English passport until later. But he was always treated as like, Leon from England or whatever, you know, I felt like saying, I felt like saying to people, like, he's not from England. He was born down the road, you know, and, and like, they weren't being uh, mean about it, but it was still like, you know, you don't want that. If you want to settle and make a home in a country, you don't want that, you know? Sure. I mean, I understand it's, you know, Japan, you would know this history better than I, so please correct me if I'm, if I'm um, being inaccurate, but Japan was closed to any mm. sort of foreign intervention for 
until you know a few hundred years ago they literally said no one comes in or out this and then it was a closed society and yeah and then they eventually i think an american this particular american general just arrived and said you are going to open for trade or we're, we're going to go to war with you um yeah. so they were, they reluctantly did so and and still to this day i think some of that remains like japan doesn't really I don't want to say they don't welcome people because you you still you're, you're treated well if you go visit there. But I get why that society is still a little closed off. I think it's largely because in many ways they realize that their society is better than most other societies, and they don't want it ruined, right? Like they don't want people to just come over and ruin and and just walk all over it. So yeah, there's a bit of that. Yeah, yeah, and they definitely got used to that. I think it was those either hundred or two hundred years or somewhere in between the two of total isolation. Apart from uh, the port town of Nagasaki, by the way, and the okay. Portuguese, the Portuguese were allowed to come in and trade, which is why, uh, like Portuguese um, cakes and you know bits of Portuguese culture were kind of well embedded into Japan back yeah. in the day. Wild, yeah. I just I'm, I'm reminded of one of my favorite memories of all time was I went, I was in Japan and. Um, with my wife, we were, it was my first trip there. And, uh, I, it was the first night we arrived and my wife had, I don't want to say smuggled cause that's not the right term, but she had a, a bag of, of, uh, weed candies, like hard candies, um, <laughs> that, that she had bought back. Like uh, she, I don't think she realized the severity of, Oh yeah. That's like basically heroin in Japan. Yeah. Right. And so, uh, and the funny thing is she had, her connecting flight had gone through somewhere like somewhere like Iran or some, some, some place with like this horrific penalty for any sort of drug. And she had just casually, you know, walked through and put it in her check in her, in her carry on luggage. And I was pretty upset with her because I was worried that she would have got caught. You know, I was like, what have you done? You realize what, what could have happened? But man, I thoroughly enjoyed those, those candies and walking around stoned in oh, Japan the first night. It was, yeah. it was really one of the highlights of my life. I just, I think also the reason I've chosen to learn Japanese is because I just think that it's the same reason I think it's so good for, for Westerners, in particular Americans, to visit Japan is because I think it's so good for your brain to be in a place that, that just has so few reference points that you can... Mm like you hang on to right so you have to you're forced to think in these totally new dimensions which to me has always been something that i really uh strive for is i, I always want my mind to be blown i always want to be like thinking fresh creative thoughts which i guess comes back to um the amazing brand you've built uh scramble which i always i always admired that brand you just the thing about scrambles it just had this or it has this kind of um it's just cool. There's no other way to put it. Like all the stuff you guys put out has just got this little edge to it. And it kind of, there's this cool little fusion of East and West. And I, I just, I've always loved your stuff. And I just want to know where, where did that come from? Is that something, have you always been a creative person or, or what, how did you, how did you come to, to be that kind of person? That's nice of you to say. Thanks. It's quite funny because I'm an incredibly uncool person. I have like terrible <laughs> fashion, fashion sense. I've, I've just given myself the most awful, quarantine haircut <laughs> I don't know. Uh, yeah I've always uh, I've always enjoyed art drawing I guess we grew up in a time where you didn't you didn't have phones and and too many kind of video games to keep you entertained so I used to love drawing always used to draw mm -hmm. I did do media kind of things at uni but like we were saying earlier I just couldn't I couldn't concentrate I was too immature uh, I went when I was like 19 so 
I was, and then writing. Writing was my main passion, I suppose, for quite a while. Um, that was my initial kind of career path. Was I wanted to be a, a journalist mm-hmm. or an author, which I'm still kind of tinkering away at, mm-hmm. but um, always designing and drawing in the background. And uh, I guess like the the story in a nutshell was like the Japanese martial arts scene was already already really well developed in Japan. Like they had, uh, uh, sorry, design scene was well developed they had really mm-hmm. kind of cool cool clothing way before we did in, in the jiu-jitsu world and i just wanted first of all i was just importing it uh, but it was really expensive and just impractical and then uh somebody that i was getting advice from said why don't you just design it you know just take the bits that you like and design it and that was it yeah yeah that's cool and i mean you thought you thought yourself a really great business i mean you don't strike me as the type who set out to be an entrepreneur. It seems to me like you kind of just stumbled upon it. Is that is that an accurate statement? Yes. I think uh, all major life decisions that I've made, I've done without too much deep thinking. I was I mentioned this to someone else the other day. Like, I can spend a week researching which computer to buy, you know, it, reading every possible thing that's ever been written about it and then i'm the same <laughs> like and then be like do you want to do you want to move to japan yeah <laughs> wait that's cool. i quit my job yeah you know <laughs> that's great did you have a job at the time when you started your company and, and the reason i ask is because you know part of one of the things I'm, I'm trying to impart to my audience or at least help my audience with is you know a lot of men are, are feel disenfranchised and unfulfilled by the the nine to five, right? Like the, mm-hmm. the traditional like um, employment that they have. And your yeah. story just, I think it's really um, inspiring because it just all happened so quickly. You took a chance. And mm. if I remember correctly, there was one particular product. It was a grappling spats or something like that, that just yeah. sold really well. And then this, this momentum was created and, you know, I guess the question is, what what kind of advice would you give to someone who's wanting to become an entrepreneur or, or become the captain of his own ship and head out on his own? Yeah. Well, um, I think it's a good message to put out there. But I also feel that, um, I might be wrong, but I feel like doing a bunch of sort of shitty, demeaning jobs might be essential uh, character building, you know? Uh-huh. I don't. I think if you just went from college or whatever and started your own company i I don't know i don't know there's something to that for sure there's something to that for sure i was i was working in a really soul-crushing office job for really low wages with a small family and uh actually my business partner uh, ben was uh had a pretty well-paid uh banking job but neither of us were happy at all and we both Mm -hmm. loved um jiu-jitsu so you know uh, quite shortly after I'd begun messing around with the idea of having a brand and doing like one or two t-shirts, we uh, he came on board. And then I think we ground it out for about two years. So it was two years of working full time for somebody else. And then every spare moment building up this, you know, stoking this little flame. Mm-hmm. And then um, it was nowhere near ready for us to, to support us. But we sort of said, like, you know, I hate my job. You hate your job. Let's just do it. Well, you know, if, if we fail, we're just going to get another crappy job or whatever. But we we actually never thought that we would fail. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. 
And then at the second that we put all of our energy into it, it took off. And uh, I'm so happy that I did that. Like the, the best thing that I ever did. And I, I'm, I'm happy now that I can also tell my kids, like, I'm not going to force them to do, you know, I, I know it is actually easy to do your own thing. It's easy to start anyway. It's, it's not easy to continue. Sure. But it's just a, it's just a decision you have to make, and you can do it. You know, you might fail, but uh, but you've got to try it. Yeah, yeah. That's I think that's absolute magic advice, and uh, the the message I I keep wanting to impart to my audience and my listeners is, and just anyone in life really is, there there comes a point. You know, like uh, one of my favorite expressions that I, I think I referenced in the previous episode or a few episodes back is that everything you want is on the other side of fear, right? There, there's always a point that the universe is going to test you where you're going to have to go through a fear or an, an anxiety to get what you want. Mm. So I'm sure there was a point where you were sitting there deciding whether, I know you, you said you make decisions usually on a whim, but there, there must have been a little bit of fear that you had to break through, right? Like you had to take a risk of some kind. And yeah, a lot. A lot. I think I was drawing, I was drawing down 500 pounds uh, a month. <laughs> from the company so okay yeah i've been there i've definitely definitely been there <laughs> i think for any entrepreneur anyone who goes out on their own like they need to give themselves credit that they there was a point which they were brave they were courageous they took a courageous action and mm. that's something i see so little of in the world right and and it's you know unfortunately there's just no getting around it if you want mm. if you want to live an extraordinary life and you want to live the life of your dreams you have to take courageous action at some point. And yeah. so, yeah, it's, it's cool to hear you confirm that. I definitely agree with that, yeah. Yeah, I, w I wanted to ask you something else, um, Matt. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier that when you were growing up, there were far less, far less access to, to kind of media and entertainment and video games. And I remember that. Like, I think we're about the same age. I remember it was like, you know, the, the odd video game you could play, but yeah. you didn't have access to an online store with like every video game in the history of the world and nah. a smartphone and and you, you had to, you yeah you had to be a little bit more creative and you had to read more and like you were more likely to draw and make stuff and how do you i only met your one kid many years ago leon he was a lovely little boy mm. I, I thought he was really cool like I'm, I'm not sure the name of your your other child but but your kids how do you knowing that how do you reconcile yeah. modern life and, and their access to those kinds of things, because you obviously don't want to stunt their development the way I believe no. many kids' is development is, be, is being stunted. Well, what kind of, how do you approach that? Uh, it's really hard work. And uh, like, in fact, we've been talking about this exact thing for the last few days with, with my kids. They're, they're nine and 11, Liam and Louie. Um, because of lockdown, especially, you know, we're together all day. So, you know, we're, I'm kind of monitoring what they're doing all day and I'm just trying to to basically these the games the games are like expertly engineered to vacuum up all their attention, right? <laughs> yep. <laughs> they really are. It's like yeah. a science. So I'm just I'm trying to make them aware that like yes, you're having a great time, but you're essentially uh, just feeding this massive machine. But you know they don't care that you're having a great time. They just want you on the game all the time, or mm. you know on Netflix or on YouTube or whatever. I'm saying like it's fine for you guys to do that because especially now like they they get to talk with their friends when they're playing which is a really actually a really nice thing because they're not seeing their friends at all so 
So there's a bit of a social aspect, which is nice. But I'm like, this is the most glorious weather we've had, you know, for so long. There's so many places you can go. You, like we watched uh, Free Solo the other day. Have you seen that? About the mountain climber or the, the mountaineer, the rock climber or yeah. something like that. Yeah. I haven't seen yeah. it, but I've, everyone tells me it's amazing. Yes, yeah, it's, it's mind-blowing. It's absolutely mind- he, he climbs like a three-kilometer peak with no safety equipment. It's just the most it's like vertical. But they became obsessed with mountain climbing. So I, we drove out to like a local uh, kind of beauty spot and they started bouldering, you know, climbing up the side. But they were just having the best time. And I was like, guys, you can do this every day. Like <laughs> you, you don't have to be, yeah. spend it, you know, you don't have to. So I'm trying to get them to, to weigh the two up. Like, but it is hard because it's like everybody's doing it. So you're kind of constantly swimming against the tide. Sure. And then you don't want to be like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Kids also, I've, I've found, uh, like, I've got this one um, very close friend, very successful guy, and he, his son is, I think, 19, 20 years old now. And he's kind of just drifting through life, and this kid's got so much potential, and, and his dad gets so frustrated with him. And, mm. you know, I, as a family friend, I kind of hang out with the kid, and we've got... I also like video games, actually. It's a great example. Mm, so do I. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and the, the kid loves video games too, so that's how we kind of bond. And, you know, I try to give him advice and I, I I try to say to him, look, your dad has made all these mistakes that you're making and he doesn't want you to get hurt by them. That's why he, he complains and that's why he's trying to push you to do things and, yeah. you know, do something with your life. But, you know, I can, I can literally see, like, I, I've tried so many different approaches with the kid, like verbal approaches. Like I've tried so many different telling him stories or giving, giving him examples. And what I've realized is like, I, I think kids are intrinsically designed to kind of not learn from the mistakes of their parents. I think they, yeah. they just have to learn it for themselves. I'm not, I'm not a parent, yeah. but that just seems to be my observation. So I think your kids will yeah. probably hit a point one day where they're like, oh, dad was right. Like, this isn't that good for me. And there's better stuff that I can be doing and exercising my creativity. But I don't know. It's just a theory. Well, I mean... I've done so many stupid things in my life, so many stupid <laughs> things, <laughs> and yeah, <laughs> and I know that they're probably going to do the same. But I suppose uh-huh. you just hope that they come out the other side, you know. Yeah, I'm sure they will with a dad like you. Like having set that example, I'm sure they'll they'll figure it out. Matt, I think is pretty much comes to the end of, of our conversation and I, I just thoroughly appreciate your time. If those listening, especially if they're martial artists, um, they want to find out more about your amazing brand, Scramble, where should they go? Uh, we are Scramble Brand Official on um, Instagram, which is where most of the action happens. Okay. Um, and then we also are on half of the Pro Jiu-Jitsu show Polaris, which you can also find with a bit of Googling. And uh, yeah, that's great. Yeah. I mean, I, I can just, again, like if you're a jiu-jitsu guy and you want to check out some cool gear, go go check out Matt's stuff. It's awesome. Thanks so much for your time, Matt. Thanks, Nick. It was fun to catch up. That's one of the things that I really like about Matt Benyon is that, you know, he's so soft-spoken and he's humble and he's as far from being a braggart or arrogant as you can possibly imagine. You know, he's he's just a he's a gentle soul and the cool thing is that he's a gentle soul that's managed to succeed you know often the world tells us the narrative that nice guys finish finish last and in this particular instance it's clear that that's not true because 
Matt Benyon is a really nice guy and he's he's built something really cool and he's been successful. I didn't know that the the episode was going to get so Japan heavy and I'm kind of glad it did because you guys know I've mentioned it before on, on the show. I'm learning Japanese at the moment and I've got a, a deep appreciation for that culture. I don't know what draws me to it. I've never really understood what it is that, that just calls to me. But um, it's becoming a bigger part of my life. I want to spend more time there. I want to I want to become, I mean, conversationally fluent in Japanese, I guess. And uh, it's something that I'm going to be, the show is going to, I don't want to say it's going to become the Japanese theme, but I am going to explore that theme in detail more in the future. We're going to have a couple more guests that have lived in Japan and guys talking about Japan. So, um, and the reason I want to do that is because I want to share that with you guys. You know, you're my audience and I I care about you and uh, I want you to get the immense or maybe have a chance at at experiencing the same immense joy and huge amount of wisdom that I've gained from the Japanese culture and my trip to Japan and uh, I really want to share that with you so be prepared more Japan stuff coming well until next time guys love and light (laughs) 